Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. The show, well, what I usually say here is that we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And that is what the show tries to do. But it's hard. It's hard because apparently it's human nature to seek divisions. Or it's the nature of some kinds of humans. I don't know. To sort of explain why I'm having a little bit of a problem with the concept of being able to talk about differences without divisions, I want to tell you a story. It is 1954. A social psychologist named Muzaffir Sharif and his colleagues decide they want to run an experiment in Oklahoma City. They gather up uh, a group of boys. They are selected to be the same religion, um, the same age. Uh, they give them psychological tests and make sure they have the same basic like emotional makeup, um, the same educational background. They want to get the most homogeneous group of boys that they can. I imagine Oklahoma City wasn't too hard. So they take this really, really same group of boys and they divide them into two groups and they take them camping. They name one group the Eagles and the other group the Rattlers. And for a week, they do not tell them about each other. And then they do. And immediately, each group starts talking about the other group without having laid eyes on that other group. They start talking about the other group as outsiders and intruders. And they start to ask for some kind of competition between the two of them. They, like, are hungry for some sort of contest or clash. And so uh, the experimenters, they organize a baseball tournament. And they come into contact for the very first time to play baseball. And they start calling each other names. Uh, Pigs, bums, cheaters. They don't know anything about each other. And they are reluctant to spend time with the other team when they get a chance. So even when they're sitting on the sidelines, they sit with their own groups. And after that game, I don't know who won it. That would probably be good to know, but I don't know who won it. And after that game, things deteriorate further. Uh, The Eagles, they burn the Rattlers flag. The Rattlers raid the Eagles cabin in the middle of the night. And then the Eagles raid the Rattlers cabin. Things actually deteriorate into violence at, at one point when, when the boys are, are able to see each other. In fact, the experimenters decide to keep them physically separate from one another for the duration of the experiment in order to avoid possible injury. But the experiment continues, and it turns out that these boys' feelings about each other warp their reality. Stop me if that sounds a little familiar. They assign the boys this task of collecting beans, and then they flash the collections up on the screen, and each team looks at these uh, groups of beans, these piles of beans, and tell the experimenters that their team collected the most, even though the experimenters have put up on the screen two identical piles of beans. Yes this experiment has some bearing on today's politics, I think. That is the story that leads off Lillian Mason's uncivil agreement, how politics became our identity. She is 
our guest this week. So I want to welcome to the show uh, Liliana Mason. She's the author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. She is an assistant professor of government politics at the University of Maryland. I am excited to talk to you because I have kind of a follow-up question on the whole robber's cave experiment and the idea that it translates pretty well uh, to American politics today. Those two groups were, you know, identical in terms of how much power and privilege they had. And I'm really curious about what happens when power and privilege aren't divided equally. Like, oh, just for instance, let's say that, you know, one group controls all three branches of government (laughs) and the other group does not. And one group has a lot of rich people in it and one group does not. And yet it's the group with the three branches of government and a lot of the wealthy people who says that they are the ones under attack. Can you help explain why that is? One of the things that I find is that people are really, um, you know, we connect our our own status, our own individual status to the status of our groups Mm -hmm. and the groups that we belong to. And so if you're in a group that has traditionally high status, and that includes white people, um, straight people, you know, cis people, any group that is generally considered, um, you know, just like a, what what people I think would would sometimes call just like a regular person. <laughs> um, there's this, well, we right, there's a sense that there's right? like, a, like that would be the other. Y- kind yeah. Of, yeah. There's a sense that there's like a baseline person. Um, and, and in fact, I've been, you know, I've had, I've had an older white gentleman argue with me and tell me that I have an identity because I'm a woman, but he has no identity. Um, so there's this sense, right. That there's this baseline identity, this baseline person that has no, has no identity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but of course we all have identity and, and those of us who have identities that are traditionally higher status and not marginalized, uh, we, we really tend to cling to those identities because they make us feel good. Um, especially if we don't feel good about other things in our lives as individuals. And so if we feel like our privileged status is being threatened, um, you know, not, not even our safety or our way of life, just, just you know, am I still the most, you know, the, the most powerful group in the country? Um, that, that is a threat that feels really, really uncomfortable, um, and so people tend to respond to that, particularly people in traditionally high status groups tend to respond to that uh, with a lot of aversion. And they're in groups that are, you know, that that feel they're relatively, in, you know, insulated, um, that feel like they are, you know, part of this long, you know, long tradition of, you know, this is this is often, you know, one of those things where people talk about this being a Christian nation, Um and so, you know, there is this sense that that um, that religiosity or Christianity is 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 part of makes you part of this this very special group of people who started the whole country. Mm. And and if you know, if you're going to be on the same level as these other people who don't who don't who aren't who aren't part of your group and have traditionally been shunned have been considered to be outsiders to the extent that it's been okay to make fun of them and to, to be violent against them. Um, that's a real threat. It doesn't feel good. 
it makes people um, it makes people tend to you know react um, strongly against it. And and I think it's you know it's it's completely possible f- for people to rationally think you know I I just you know I just think that you've moved too fast, um, but but really psychologically be motivated by this sense of like I don't like how this feels. Yeah, and I guess that brings up a, a question as far as that I didn't think I was a Nazi till you called me a Nazi argument, uh, which is, is being called a bigot a status threat? Is that something, is that why people would react the, that way? No, it's it's a really interesting uh, question to ask right now because of, you know, this whole, we've got people wearing t-shirts that say deplorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but even that I think is a response to a sense that it is an insult it's an insult to be called a racist. It's an insult to be called a bigot or deplorable. Um, and so when, you know, we have, we have norms, we have social norms uh, that, that generally prohibit us from using that type of language, uh, at least in, you know, the larger public, right? Like on television and, you know, in the media, um, you know, Remember, like George Allen, George Allen said the word macaca, and his entire campaign was destroyed. Right, Those so there, the days. there, what there has been this <laughs> sense, <laughs> there has been this sense that there's, you know, there, there are real, you know, it, it's really bad to be called a racist, and it's an insult. And so, one way to deal with that is to say, um, you know, one way to say it is to say, how dare you, you know, call me that? I'm not one, um, but. But possibly an even stronger way to respond to it is to say, uh, particularly if you are, you know, in one of these traditionally high status groups. So if you're white or male or Christian, um, it's easy to say, no, I I'm actually um, I'm actually, you know, one of the one of the most powerful groups in this country. I have historically been a member of one of the most powerful groups in this country. How dare you call me that? And therefore, uh, since you think it's so bad, then why don't I just, you know, hold on to this white identity as hard as I can, for instance. But it does require someone to actually really feel strongly identified as white to begin with, right? Not everyone is going to respond that way to being called racist. And, you know, a lot of people who are not strongly identified as white, you know, white people who are not strongly identified as white would not respond that way. Um, And also, generally, people who are non-white are not going to respond that way because it's, you know, the status differential is is really meaningful. Now, if we can just go back to Robert's Cave for a second, and I realize that this is not like perfect analogy and everything, but another question that has to do with those two groups, homogeneity, which is, I feel like one lesson out of Robert's Cave is not about how we all tend to divide up and uh, compete with each other when given a chance but how straight white men divide up and compete with each other when they get a chance. I'm wondering, do do groups of non-privileged people go to war with each other in the same way that two groups of, you know, statistically similarly privileged people do? That's a really interesting question. I haven't actually thought about it. Um, I mean, the the first, my first thought would be, that um, it would depend entirely on the context. So if, if you know, so the robber's cave experiment was done in 
you know, a park out a park outside of Oklahoma City in the 1950s, and it was all fifth grade boys. So, like, keep in mind, right? These were fifth grade boys. Right. Um, but we all do tend to kind of conform to this behavior that they that they were observed to have. But, so, if they had not all been white Protestant, um, uh, you know, relatively, you know, scholastically um, capable. Uh, from the same type of family structure. Um, If instead, you know, this had been a group of, of, you know, black children in the 1950s, I'm guessing that there wouldn't have been the same type of, of fight in the sense that everyone around that campsite would have been white. Mm -hmm. So, right. So in there, in the, in the world, the world in which the Robbers Cave experiment happened, these were a bunch of white Protestant boys in a white Protestant world. So for them, being the best meant just being the best, you know, fifth grade boy. Right. Um, and and so and so the, the the idea of status threat was not coming from anywhere else. It was only coming from the fact that there was another camp of boys down the down the road. For for a different group, you know, for especially for a marginalized group, you would, you know, depending on who the counselors were, right, right. how they got there, who they're, you know, who they're, who they see every day. Um, they, I mean, if it was if it was a camp for all, you know, all black children that that like took care of them and and was, you know allowed them to just be themselves. I'm not sure they would have competed at all. They might have actually just thought it was a really great place to <laughs> go to camp. Because <laughs> I was thinking about how, you know, we usually, I think, a, a, a fairly natural assumption, um, I want to be careful how I use this language, but I, I think it would be easy to assume that conflicts, you know, erupt out of a crisis of resources, right? That that that's what we fight over. That's That's... In, in privilege, maybe even as a kind of resource, right? And you fight because you want to be the best. But I, I'll, I agree that in when I think about what it might have looked like to have a, two groups of girls, you know, or or two groups of black children, I think that though they would be marginalized in society at large, they probably wouldn't have had that same like let's just go ahead and call it a pissing contest, right, or a dick measuring contest. <laughs> That these two groups of boys. I don't want to ex- extrapolate too much on that, but but I am interested in your research um, because one of the things that turn, also turns up in your research is um, that you know we have collapsed identity and partisanship, right? Right. Um, it occurs to me that's that's easy to do if you're one of the base what we th- you know very heteronormatively and racistly think of as the regular person, mm-hmm. right? If you're not a regular person, it's harder to collapse that identity. If you're not white man, right. cis, is that is that what you found? Yeah. So that's where I actually find the differences between Republicans and Democrats. Um, and it's something that I've actually kind of, I'm sort of moving into it now more with my research um, after the book. I don't talk a lot about party asymmetry in the book, but um but it is sort of implied in that um, the, you know, the real difference between Republicans and Democrats is that um, we have, you know, Republicans essentially have become the party of, um, you know, white Christian um, 
you know, maybe maybe men, but although that's gender is a strange um, identity. Um, and then and then <laughs> and then Democrats are the party of everyone else, right? Not white, not Christian. Um, and so, so essentially, what we what we end up with is um, one party that is really truly uh, homogeneous, the Republican Party, and uh, and then the Democratic Party is they're they're very clearly socially distinct from Republicans, but they're not necessarily um, they're not in a group that's homogeneous because non-white is not an identity, right. and and in fact, you know, fifty five percent of Democrats are white. And and over half of Democrats are also Christian. So what ends up happening within the Democratic Party is that everybody has the same identity as being a Democrat, but they also have to work together with people outside of their racial group and outside of their religious group relatively often under the party umbrella. Um, for Republicans, uh, it's very less common for someone in the Republican Party to have to work together under the Republican Party umbrella with someone who is racially or religiously different from them. And, you know, there's obviously a few cases, but but it is much, much less common in the Republican Party. And I, I, I think of that as sort of one way to understand sort of what's going on with our politics um, in that generally, if you have, this is something that that social psychologists have studied for a long time. If you have you know, two different identities that are largely overlapping, by which I mean most of the people in one group are also members of the other group. Um, you tend to be more intolerant of outsiders. It's 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 this finding that's been um, replicated a few times. And if you have really sort of un, not overlapping groups, so, you know, very f- few people who are in one of your groups are also in another group, um, then you tend to be more tolerant of outsiders. One of the, one of the classic examples is... Um, you know, women CEOs. So if you identify as a woman and you identify as a CEO, um, those are not largely overlapping groups. And so you'll think <laughs> of yet. people who are not women and not, <laughs> not exactly, right, not yet. Um, but it's a lot easier to think right. about people who are not women and not CEOs as people who are like you because you meet them in, you know, one of your groups. Right. Um, but if you're a male CEO, then you're not necessarily, you know, coming across a whole lot of women um, and, you know, and you're not necessarily, you know, you're probably hanging out with a lot of, you know, high powered business people. And so so it's it's a lot easier to just sort of um, think of people who are not in your in your group as someone you don't you don't really need to know, someone you don't need to think about and someone who isn't who isn't, you know, on, on the, in the most benevolent side, who isn't on your radar. Right. Um, and in the sort of the most the most dangerous side as somebody who you actually actively want to harm. And that's sort of what we've seen happen over over the last few decades for the two parties. It reminds me of something I, I discovered when I was doing research into kind of the different outcomes for implicit bias training versus just trying to be a more diverse organization. And it turns out that the diversity efforts are relatively like long lasting and concrete, whereas implicit bias efforts, not so much because mm-hmm. it, I, I think with the study I, I saw, I think more than once, showed that if you make an effort to just say like that target um, race diversity, you wind up increasing diversity in all kinds of other areas too. Just, and I think it's because of what you're talking about, because like once you start hiring people who are not straight white men, their eyes are open to all kinds of people as potential colleagues. And so you just wind up getting more different people in the mix. 
because of the sort of the phenomenon you're talking about. Yeah, no. And in, and in fact, if you just think about it in terms of, you know, this basic theory of if your groups are overlapping, right, as soon as you introduce one extra group into the office, um, assuming that people have an identity as being, you know, part of that office, which generally people do, um, you know, we, we have a million identities, right? Mm-hmm. You can identify as almost anything. Um, and and so as long as, you know, you have a sort of a new ingredient that's part of your office group identity, um, that will that should immediately make you think about, well, what other, you know, what other people are out there? Mm-hmm. How can we, you know, like this, it, all of a sudden it creates, it, it moves from this very insulated homo- homogeneous group of people into a slightly less homogeneous group of people, which psychologically should increase tolerance for outgroups in general. What is texture? Great question. Texture is the surface of things, and Texture is the magazine app. It offers more than 200 of the best magazines all in one place. Get complete issues. Get back issues anytime, anywhere, all in one place. Stay connected to the biggest and best stories with Texture. You can stay connected to political stuff, of course. They have Time. They have uh, The Atlantic. They have The New Yorker. You can also do things like research just, for instance, a home renovation project, which is what I've used it for. You know, the latest issues of design magazines may not have what you're looking for, but somewhere in the archives, they're going to have your dream bathroom, your dream kitchen, your dream bedroom, whatever. Uh, We're redoing our bathroom. I'll probably mention that again at some point because it's going to take a while. Anyway, Texture is a great place for me to go and remind myself about why I'm putting myself and my family through this trouble. To get your free trial of texture, a seven-day free trial, please go to texture.com slash friends. Again, that's texture.com slash friends. Why wait to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazines or your soon-to-be favorite magazines? Try texture for free today at texture.com slash friends. That's texture.com slash friends and start your free trial. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I look forward to, I guess, your next book already because... 
one one thing in your book that I had to keep kind of catching myself on because I you do I I think um, when you talk about parties and stuff, it, you pretty much talk about parties and you don't do a lot of like it's different with uh, this particular ideology versus that particular ideology. Like you're mainly talking about like partisanship just as an idea. So there was a part of me that was like, do, yeah. do do my people, I go ahead and I identify as a progressive liberal person, act the same way? And you're from, but what I hear you saying is that there are some differences um, because of those overlapping identities that you can't kind of do, you know, both siderism, right? Like there is something very different about how the, I, these two groups of people, at least in America, the way that our parties now exist they react differently. Yeah. So I, I mean, the first, I would have, I, w- I want to say that, you know, the, the first sort of overall caution to be offered with this is that every single person is equally vulnerable. Yes. To doing this. Um, the, and, and you're right. The, it's, it, it is, we, what we've ended up with is this particular arrangement of uh, party and social identity where, you know, one party is essentially representing the high, the traditionally high status groups of people. And the other party is representing everybody else. And, um, and so, you know, if any of that were to change, then, then, you know, all of this could change. It's not, it's not necessarily that Republicans are always going to be like this, Mm. um, or even that conservatives are always going to be like this. It's it's just that, or that Democrats can't be. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, every single every single person who calls himself a liberal or progressive absolutely can have this happen to them. Um, but the way that yeah, the way that we're situated right now, um, and this is actually something. I mean, this is George Washington warned about this in. <laughs> In his farewell speech in seventeen, you know, ninety six or something, um, he actually specifically said, you know, if you end up if you end up getting into factions that are too separate from each other, you invite not just corruption but foreign influence. He specifically said, you invite. Oh God, foreign influence. he was warning us about Russia. <laughs> George Washington. He's, he's yeah, he was saying if you <laughs> was warning us about the 2016 he, election. Weird. That's so crazy. It's it is it's a really bizarre quote to read. It's kind of I mean you should just read that entire speech. It's pretty short. It's really fascinating because one of the things he was saying is if you guys start fighting against each other, you're going to forget that our nation is the most important thing to defend. Mm-hmm. And if you forget that, we are vulnerable. So we need to make sure going forward that, you know, he hated the idea of parties. He did not he did not want us to turn into a partisan nation. Obviously, we all, we had already done so at that point, but um, he didn't like it. And uh, and and the reason that he didn't like it was this was this idea that when you start feeling like your fellow citizens are your enemy, then you lose track of what your enemies are doing, what your real enemies are doing. And, you know, we got to this point where, you know, we're saying, you know, I'd rather like in Alabama, right, where we were saying, like, I would rather have a child molester as my senator than a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you get to that point, you it really is, you know, you have to kind of sit back and think about what, <laughs> what are we actually are we actually one nation right now? And. Um, and how can we try to reduce this? Because it's getting to it's getting to the point now where it is 
really dangerous, and it's sort of blinding to to a lot of people. Okay, Professor, what can we do? <laughs> uh, that's a that's a really good question. So um, I almost titled the, the concluding chapter of my book. 10 unlikely scenarios because I can think of a few things, but I don't, I'm not sure how any of them happen. So one is a major realignment. This is sort of how it started, right? Is that the, the Southern Democrats, the, the racially, the, you know, the racially conservative Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but they didn't leave right away because partisanship is really strong. It's a really strong identity. And in the South, in the you know 50s and 60s, the idea of being Republican was repugnant to people, and so a lot of these Southern Democrats refused to call themselves Republicans. But yellow they dog Democrats—they were yellow. Once. That's where the term "yellow dog Democrat" comes from. Right, right. They and they and they started sometimes voting for Republicans, um, and maybe after you know years, they started to call themselves Independents. But it's but it's such a strong identity that really it, would, it took a generation, you know. So maybe they're calling themselves independents, and then their children grow up feeling like maybe I, I can move from independent to Republican. And so that's part of the reason that it's been so many decades that it's taken us to get to here is because, you know, we started this process in the 60s. And then partisanship is so strong that it took us, you know, 50 years to get to a place where um, we're kind of— realigned into the new, you know, new, you know, quote unquote, correct groups, the groups that match our racial and religious identities. Um, And so we could see something like that again. Um, One of the barriers to that is that it it seems to require an identity that's stronger than party to break up party identity. And, And race is one of those. And that's, you know, that certainly worked in the 60s. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see, you know, a, a, some sort of break between, you know, racially moderate Republicans and racially conservative Republicans. Um, that's what people were predicting before Trump was elected or just after Trump was elected, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so there could be some, you know, in some way, a partisan realignment that would take a few decades. And in between, we would have all these cross, new cross-cutting identities. People wouldn't know exactly who they're supposed to vote for, and we would have less polarization. So and what you mean by um, racially I'm not sure how that happens. moderate versus not racially moderate? You mean like, I will say. Like the, racist and not racist. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll go ahead and put out there. And it was using, predicted that. I'm using the, the academic, I'm using the academic term. Yeah, the, the racist would leave the Republican Party. But it turns out um, either people are, are, you know, more racially intolerant than we realized um, or they're just they've they're other identity is stronger, right? Like it's so important right. to them. For instance, we can talk about, you know, my co-religionists again, the conservative white evangelicals who who may, you know, have lots of love in their hearts for all kinds of people, but they are so focused on a few issues that Trump champions. They're like, but I, I can't let go. Um, and right. And so whatever other identity they have, even if one of their identities is not being a racist, um, they still haven't left right. the party. So, okay. Well, they can't vote for a Democrat. Right. I think, right. Exactly. It's like, it's, you could be uncomfortable with what's going on, but you could never imagine yourself voting for a Democrat. Right. Right. Which, to be honest, I think a lot of the Southern Democrats in the 60s f- probably felt that way. Right? They were, they were really, par- they were really strongly identified as Democrat 
And they couldn't imagine identifying as Republican. I, I should actually, uh, and for so, people you know, that don't want, know, sorry, for people that don't know the term yellow dog Democrat, that does mean I'd rather vote for a yellow dog than for a Republican. <laughs> I'd vote for a yellow dog who was right. a Democrat before I would vote for a Republican. And then my family proudly called itself yellow dog Democrats for a long time until I, I did not realize that term was actually hugely racist <laughs> in its own wow. way. I mean, it has yeah. a racist history. Yeah. Um, in that why people yeah. would vote for a Democrat. So we, we don't use that term in my family yeah. anymore. <laughs> but yes. I mean, I, it's, it, it, so this this could happen, right? It could gradually over time, we could see, and it's not necessarily that the racists would leave the Republican Party, but maybe um, they would stay. And the you know people who are uncomfortable with overt racism and white supremacy would you know, start voting with Democrats every once in a while, and then this gradual shift could occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that's a possibility. Uh, although then we en- we could end up with, you know, a party of white supremacy and then a party of everyone else, which would not necessarily be good um, for <laughs> polarization either. <laughs> or good. Just it would not be good. I would I would or go just with good. Yeah, not, not good. good. It's not good. Um, <laughs> I think we already have a running experiment the, on that, to be honest. So and it's turned out not good. We kind of do. Yeah. So, yeah, we kind of do, um, at least in terms of the people who are sp- speaking out loud. Yeah. The the another thing um, that could happen is that so in the in the robber's cave experiment, right, the boys hated each other. They wouldn't they they refused to even get in the same bus to go home at the end of camp. And so the counselors did a whole bunch of. Um, you know, uh, exercises where the boys had the two teams had to work together in order to solve the problem. And and after doing these exercises, like one of them was like um, the water system to the camp was turned off and they had no water and they had to all go f- fix it. There was like a tree that had fallen o- over and um, they had to go fix it together. And so they did these exercises working together for the good of the whole of all the boys. And then they at the end, they still hated each other, but they got on the bus together. They agreed to get on the bus together. So. And this is like the Independence Day scenario, right? right. Aliens invade right. the planet. <laughs> is that the academic term for it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my academic term. For it. Um, <laughs> aliens invade the planet. And then we all realize we're all human and we band together, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the pro- the problem with this idea is it's the idea of a superordinate identity. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the idea of a superordinate identity is that we have to, you know, both sides are going to have to agree that the threat is the same and that the solution to the threat is the same. And if they don't, then we become even more polarized. Um, so, for instance, after 9-11, right, Bush, Bush had um, approval numbers in the, in the 90%. Um, the whole country was together. And, and then as soon as the Iraq War, uh, you know, I guess well, solution as, as soon as was I mean, on that the was, table. It, it took two years, and there was a big argument about it. And yes, right, but yes, yes, right, <laughs> right, and and that that solution polarized people, yeah. right? Because yeah. of, because half the country really didn't think that was a good idea, and um, and so you know there is a threat, and then if you don't, if you can't agree on how to fix it, then it doesn't work. It, right. It's not a it's not a unifying thing. So that is one way to do it. Um, another way would be to to try, this is also really hard, to try to to think about a media that doesn't that doesn't present everything as a horse race. So, you know, when there is a when there's legislation going through Congress, 
on, um, you know, uh, gun control. Don't discuss it as a victory for Democrats if this passes, right? Instead, it's like this is something that a lot of Americans really think is important. And, you know, is there enough support in Congress for this? And so because the way that every piece of legislation now is discussed, it's like, well, it's a win for Democrats or it's a win for Republicans or it's a win for Trump or it's or it's not a win for Trump. And that I actually just have a I there's an I wrote an op-ed just today um, about how this like Trump using the word winning over and over again is is really damaging. And it really focuses everybody's attention on the victory itself and not on what we're actually doing after the victory happens. And mm-hmm. there is policy. We need to be doing like we need to be legislating. We need to actually be governing. But when we're so invested in our identities, we tend to think about whether or not we're winning as more important than the actual outcomes of government. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's another like psychological, you know, like psychologists have been looking at this for a long time and demonstrated that um, when you identify with a group, you prefer the group to win over the greater good of everybody. And you're willing to essentially uh, sacrifice your own your own uh, resources in order to get the victory instead of everybody getting the most and the best the best situation. Well, this explains Trump's shoot so the, always shoot the hostage um, negotiation yeah, style. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it also explains like, you know, sort of this language always about how, you know, or this this sort of always going back to Hillary, right? <laughs> always going back to, um, you know, how big the crowds were, going back to the, you know, the number of electoral votes, the, you know, going, harping on the, the election itself really is just reinforcing, like, we won that. We, were, we are winners because of that. And it doesn't matter what happens. The analogy that I use is, like, after the Super Bowl, we don't ask the teams to do something else, right? They just win. And then we're happy. Right. And, and so it's the trophy. The trophy is the goal. There's nothing else to be done after you get the trophy. And the lo- the more we focus on that as a as a central idea, the the more I think it's it's impossible to find a way to govern because everything is zero sum. One thing that my show tries to get to is how we navigate this time. You know how we yeah. interact with the people that have a different identities than we do. Um. So one thing I actually would say in terms of like interacting with other people um, is that so much of so, you know, when I say like legislation is is this idea of zero sum, essentially all of our politics at this point is is loaded with this idea of who wins and who loses. And so, you know, a lot of at least my sense of a lot of the ways that we can talk that we can kind of create more cross-cutting identities or like create, understand people across the other, on the other side is to stop talking about politics with them, um, <laughs> right? Talk about their family, talk about, right? Talk about like things you have in common. And then, and then once you're, you know, actually engaged with each other on a human level, then you could maybe talk about politics. But to start off with it is it immediately creates this, like, if, if I, if you win, then I lose. And therefore, this conversation, there's going to be absolutely no compromise in this conversation. So that's that's one. And that's but that's a very individual level type thing. And it's also important to remember that because of the makeup of the Republican Party, 
there are more Democrats who are willing to do this than Republicans. Yeah. Democrats are much more used to reaching out to people that are not like them because we have all these people in our party that are, you know, that are like that are like Democrats, you know, that are also Democrats, but that are unlike unlike Demo- unlike the the Democrats in racial and religious ways. Right. Well, it's a diverse and, it's a diverse so, party. That's that's the what you're saying is that we're used to working right, with people right. who are different that, than us. So we and can, that forces that really forces people to to practice talking to people who are not like them. And and so a lot of this, you know, like looking out to the the rural Trump voter in you know some random place that that we keep doing. Is you know it's a it's a really sort of classic liberal exercise, classic democratic exercise because it's the thing that we do within our own party. It's the thing that Democrats do, and um, and you know the Republican Party tends not to do that, tends not to engage in that type of what are other groups of people thinking. So it is something to keep in mind also that it you know it's, it's a little one sided when when these types of exercises are are attempted. Now, these days, you can get practically anything on demand. Magazines, for instance, this podcast. And you can get stamps on demand. You don't have to go to the post office anymore to mail letters or packages. You can get postage on demand with stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office. And let me stand for the post office, as I usually do. It is one of the best services that we take for granted um, that America offers when you think about it. Uh, It is cheap. It is reliable. And now it comes to you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer and the mail carrier just picks it up. There's no calling to get a pickup. There's no dropping off anywhere. Just click print mail and you are done. I use stamps.com for my official business, which I do have. To be honest, there's not a ton of it, but I no longer have to make my schedule around the post office. The post office comes to me. So you want to try it out? You can. Use friends for this special offer. You get $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone, which also could be a podcast microphone, at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's right. Go to stamps.com. Go to the podcast microphone on the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com and enter friends. Now, would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. And with Everlane, I don't have to and neither do you. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step of the process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because Everlane sells directly to you, the prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. Check out their Cashmere Crew. It's for some reason, actually, sometimes cashmere weather here in Minnesota. Sometimes we're having a weird, weird summer. The 100% human box cut tee, the silk short sleeve square shirt, the high rise skinny jean, the mid rise jean, that is my favorite and more. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com friends. Plus you'll get free shipping on your first order. I had a lot of fun putting this together, my personalized collection at everlane.com friends. Again, 
uh, you will get free shipping on your first order. Everlane.com slash friends. So I just talked to Rick Wilson and it, we had a, we ended in kind of this dark place because we were talking about how we're very lucky that we have a relatively, we, we're in actually a relatively stable uh, time for our country in terms of, you know, civil society and economically, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's not a, like a huge social crisis. I mean, there's lots of problems, but we have a sort of functioning civil society, right? Mm-hmm. And so Trump can do stuff, but like we're on an everyday level, we are mostly attempting to get along with each other, you know? And like people go to work and school and all that. But if something were to happen where we had an economic crisis or a national security crisis and that was destabilized, the kinds of shit that Trump could get away with would be pretty obscene. There's some research um, in in the in comparative politics, which looks at other countries, you know, the, the yeah. politics of other countries. And there's a there's some research in that field which actually has shown that, you know, when you have um, racial, ethnic and religious alignment politically, um, the, the chance of civil war increases substantially. And it's not assured. Oh, <laughs> but, but one but one of the things one of the things that tends to make it a lot more likely is if you already have this situation and then there is um, uh, an economic challenge or a crisis of leadership. Yeah, that's what, and, and that's and so those are yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> we were we were basically yes, that's sort of where we were going with it was that we live in a we're in this very tenuous time in a way. You know, like if something went wrong, um the, the way the Trump administration has kind of worked on our brains and the way we've sorted ourselves, we are in a place where a lot of violence could happen. That's what we were talking about. Yeah. No, it's not, and we're not we're not unique in the world. You right, know, exactly. It, it like we would, we've places. seen this happen in other countries. It would not, and you know, when I theorized this and when Rick and I were theorizing it, we weren't talking about it like out of our ass. Like, I mean, we you can look at other collapsed countries and this is what happens. Yeah. And where yeah. I decided to take it after we got to this very depressing place is, is something actually I think you're sort of been talking around too, which is that what can I as a person do about it? You know, what can my listeners do about this? We talked about, Mm -hmm. well, you know, go to your neighbor's yard sale, like volunteer, you know, go across town and and go to a restaurant there, like be in your community. Um, And I I actually do some volunteer work uh, that's non-political. And I think that if, if you have the time and energy, I think that's actually a great place to kind of do your part to keep civil war from coming. <laughs> yeah. It, it yeah, sounds like your this, this research sort of backs this up. It does. It, I mean, it, it would be the, the idea is to actually, you probably have to like leave your community, you know, you right. go to the, go to a different community um, and work there, you know, volunteer there. Right. Um, because our communities have become pretty, um, politically isolated also. So, so yeah, it would be make social ties with people who are not, who are not politically like you and are not socially like you. Um, I mean, the, the one, the one issue with that advice is that 
Uh, I strongly recommend it for for white people. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, but for, you know, anybody who feels like they're going to be in danger by walking into a different community, um, that's not as easy to do. I would right? say then so, do, do work in your own community if that's where you feel safe. But I also— right. I mean, I guess part of my part of my thinking, I think that's a really wonderful distinction. I totally agree with it. I, it's, you're totally right. And it's white people that need to work on their ability to work with other people. People who are marginalized have to work with people like who are different than them most of the time, you know? Right. So like they don't yeah. they're not they don't need to go outside their community to know what it's like to deal with a white person. Right. Like they're having to kind of think about white people and what white people want and what white people need all the time. Um, or straight yeah. or cis or, you know, all, all those things. Um, I do think there's something of value to just having non-political life in your community. Like, even if it is just in your community, like. Absolutely. Knowing how to talk to someone, knowing people's names, even if it's like just a little bit outside. And I guess when I say your community, I'm thinking like your city, you know. And not your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like, just connecting is is important. Authoritarianism and civil war and violence happen when people are isolated and scared. Yep. So. <laughs> when, right. When they feel afraid of each other, when they feel threatened by each other. Yeah. yeah. And when they feel like if if the other guy wins, then I lose. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and that's a real that's a real feeling that's out there. And it's sort of this palpable feeling that's out there right now that if, you know, if you do better then I do worse. Yeah. And that's a root of a lot of this. Um, and I and, you know, individually going and, and making sure that your, you know, that your your social world is slightly more um diverse politically is, you know, is probably helpful. Um, but it, you know, at the same time, it, it everybody has to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're right. And there's only one group of us that's really more primed for it. But, right. One, right. And that's, that's the problem is one group of people is, is practiced and has been doing it. And, and the, this, you know, and the other group of people doesn't ha really doesn't have an interest in yeah. doing it or feel that they have any obligation to. So that I think is one of the you know, one of the one of the big challenges is actually really reaching out to people who are in really isolated and traditionally high status groups. And I'm not saying that they're that they're like, you know, currently wealthy people. It's just the, you know, the traditionally high status groups um, or higher status. Um, that, I think, is our real challenge, because, the you know, if you're not interested in reaching out to people outside of your racial um, or religious or partisan group, then that's the problem, right? If you have absolutely no desire to do that and you have absolutely no interest in trying, um, that's where I think we, we're going to come across, you know, option, you know, possibilities of violence, possibilities of, you know, of conflict. Yeah. Um, I actually think of um, like my own individual actions in that regard that, there's something to be said for being the liberal person in a group of conservatives, you know, like that that's a kind of outreach to do a non-political kind of mm -hmm. have a non-political actions, activities and service work 
for me personally, like that's sort of what I like try to do with my family, my (laughs) in-laws. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, To humanize, humanize the other side. Yeah. Um, Is like just try to live my values in front of them, you know, so that they, their stereotype of what a social justice warrior is and does and believes, like I want to be the thing that they know isn't, you know, I want to help break up that stereotype for them. Right. And you're not a monster. And, and you know, some of the work I'm doing now is actually looking at de- partisan dehumanization. And there are, you know, there are Americans who think of the other side as as animals. They will say they're animals. Yeah. Um, it's not huge numbers. You know, it's like 5%, 10%, but that's still millions of people. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, we measured that in 2017. Um, and that's, that's where, that's where it gets really dangerous, right? Is if you, if you think of someone as, as so different from you that they're not human, then, then we can, then we actually start seeing people treating each other, um, in, in violent ways. Um, but, you know, and, and the question is, you know, do you, what is it that makes you not want to make a cake for another person? (laughs) Right. Um, is that person, is that person somehow less than less than human to you, right? To kind of bring it back to the the first question. Um, you know, is is there something about that person that is, you know, less than a full, fully acceptable human being? And and if if that is in there somewhere, right? The idea that this person is is a flawed human being, there's something wrong with them as a as a person. Um, then that's, you know, that's the type of thing that really divides people. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, sort of when I talk to my co-religionists about this, um, I get really frustrated (laughs) because there's a whole (laughs) lot of stuff in my version of the Bible that talks about the humanity of others and being of service to others. And that to the extent, you know, someone has fallen, well, we're all fallen, you know? So I don't get it. I mean, I've asked conservative Christians a thousand times to show me where it is I'm going to go to hell if I make a cake for a gay person. Right. Because it's not in there. I swear it's not in there. (laughs) Right, right. Would you make a cake for a yeah. For a criminal that was in jail? Would you make a cake for Probably. a leper or a whore? You know, <laughs> you know the, the people that, right, right. Would you... <laughs> that Jesus hung out with, you know. Yeah. Like, so he, I he... think it's a good question to say, like, would you would you make a cake for a criminal? And if so, then, you know, that's someone who didn't who didn't follow your rules. Yeah. And, and you're right, because the one thing there is a verse that I'm blank, blanking on the exact verse, but there is some there is a verse that talks about you not not basically abetting sin. You know, not allowing mm. sin to happen, not being a part of it. But, ugh, you know, like that's you're hanging a lot on that idea. And there's a whole lot of evidence on the yep. other side. <laughs> there's a whole lot of other stuff on, on the side of, you know, washing their feet, not just baking a cake, but, you know. Right. Utter, and, utter and, there's, and, and, you know, kind of like I said, it's there's 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 a lot going on behind the psychological scenes there you know if you're resting a whole lot on one sentence then um i mean maybe there's I'll, something I'll else going with on one, with one quick story <laughs> okay with, this is a really uh, this is an experiment that was done in 2003 and and uh essentially a political psychologist jeffrey cohen uh asked people to write down like what their welfare positions were 
And then um, and then he had a, a different group of people come back, and he and he ha- for half of them he assigned them. He said, okay, this is the Democrats' welfare position, and this is the Republicans' welfare position. And the other half he switched it. And uh, and then he, and then he asked them, what's your position on welfare? And they all chose the one that matched their party, regardless. Mm-hmm. And then he said, um, uh, did your party have any effect on your attitude about this policy? And everyone said no. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he said, okay, I'm going to ask you to write a letter to the editor of the newspaper. And I want you to know that your congressperson reads these. So this could actually have an effect on policy. So I want you to write a letter to the editor explaining the reasons that you hold this position. And people wrote tons of reasons that they held that position that they were just experimentally induced to hold. Like many reasons. They constructed them on the spot in order to defend the position that they had been told that their party held. So we can think that we have really good reasons behind the things that we say, but we are also very powerfully affected by our social cues, whether we know it or not, and to a degree that we actually probably really don't even know. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I unfortunately have to have to say say goodbye, but um, fascinating book, uh, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Uh, apparently, you also write op-eds, so people should should look <laughs> out for those. And I am very interested to, to hear more about your further research. And uh, definitely, we'll have to have you back. This is this is, I think, really vital stuff. Um, Great. For what it's worth, I do think that there are conservatives and Republicans that are struggling a little bit with this, but they have are not primed to do so. You know what I mean? Like, right that's sort of the distinction you're talking about. Um, yeah, you have to want, you have to be really motivated to, yeah. to do uh, it. Yep. Um, anyway, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll speak again. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. And that is it for today's show. Next week is going to be a little bit different because of the holiday in the middle of everything. It's going to be a show with frequently asked questions. And I should be clear, these are questions uh, both that come via uh, the email, the show's email, with friends like pod at gmail.com, and questions that I just kind of get. Um, a lot of them have to do with what am I actually trying to accomplish it is a great opportunity for me to think about what I'm actually trying to accomplish. Uh, thanks everyone who's been writing in in general. Um, we're finally catching up on the backlog of listener mail. Feel free to add to it if you want. Again, with friends like pod at gmail.com. Uh, please don't just rate and review our show, by the way. Rate and review Aaron Ryan's new show and, you know, download that thing too. It's really funny. She's really great. It's called Hysteria. It's a wonderful addition to the Crooked Media lineup. And just always, please take care of yourself and we'll see you next week.